0: As, as I've been saying people, telling people, I've been, I've been packing up to leave, leave for Amsterdam. And I wanted to ask you two, Jared and Richard, Mm -hmm. do you have any tips to give me? I'm, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at less than two weeks before, uh, we've got to vacate our entire house and then we're going to fly over there. But when it comes to packing up the house, what, uh, what are, give me, if, if you have them, give me at least one lesson learned as far as a good thing to do and one thing to avoid doing. When it comes to packing up the house, Mm. how about, how about you can go first guest,
1: Jared? I think a good standard to have is does a particular item bring you joy? And if it brings Mm. you joy, Mm. then, uh, then bring that, that along with you. If it does not bring you joy, then give it to goodwill or give it away or get rid of it. So I think you need to have a pretty, pretty rigorous standard there for what you bring, especially for a big move overseas. Okay, this
0: is good because I wasn't sure if I should take my children or not.
1: So I think the answer—I've got that answer figured out now. And are you going to reveal what that answer is? Or <laughs> well, of
0: course, I'll, I'll take them with me. I think I think I can check in three bags since I'm executive platinum, so they
1: can fit in. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the tax rules like are in the Netherlands, so you may be putting some <laughs> deductions at risk if you don't bring them.
0: Mm, that's a good
1: point. Now, how about how
0: about something? Something that you have learned to like, you know, not do. What's something to avoid?
1: Yeah, don't don't do it rushed. I think you need a whole lot of lead time. The last time we moved was under duress, and it was not a happy moment.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, that's good. That's good. How about yourself, Richard? What are are some lessons learned from moving?
2: Yeah, gosh, I moved up from uh, LA to Seattle almost three years ago, exactly. And there's still some boxes in the garage marked like important that I don't think I've opened in three years. So probably. Mm The, uh you know taking that second pass and and those maybe keepsakes sure, but you know moving stuff from house to house if you if you have any boxes from your last house in your current house that you have not opened it's probably time Ooh, to, to time say time. goodbye
0: that's that's good I like that one that's that's because uh, i've I've been getting rid of some stuff like that and i had uh now maybe this i'm gonna regret this. Uh, decades in the future, but I had a box full of my old GI Joe figures and my old Star Wars figures. Mm. I spent a couple of days thinking about them, and then I just closed up the box and took it to Goodwill, and I was done with it. And uh, I don't know. I think I think one of the uh, downsides of eBay is that things have very little collectibles have very little value nowadays. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure I only lost maybe like fifty dollars or
2: something. <laughs> well, the the other thing That's not to can- do. My parents just moved and I went to help them and uh, we got in all these awkward conversations of like, I don't want this, but you should take it to remember me. Like you're like 60, like you'll be fine. Like, why am I, oh. why am I taking life keepsakes for you? I, what am I going to do with this weird vase? You know, vase. I, I don't, I don't need it. So oh. if you're moving, do not invite your children over and then hand them all your junk that you don't feel like throwing out.
0: Oh man. Isn't that the truth? I have, you know, I have, I have an even deeper, uh, problem like that where, uh, <laughs> Uh, my, my, uh, my mother, who I don't think listens to this podcast, my mother has over the years saved a box for each year of my life. Uh, and at one point, at one point I was given maybe the first eight boxes of of those (laughs) things. And so it's, it's not, it's not only her keepsakes, it's her keepsakes of my keepsakes. And, uh, yeah, I told her that she's going to be getting those boxes back.
2: uh, (laughs) She's making work for you. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well well that's that's good advice. Why don't you introduce yourself, uh, returning guest?
1: Hey, yeah, I'm uh Jared Ruckel, I work on the product team here for All Things Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I we we're gonna have you on this week to uh talk in more detail uh, about Pivotal the most recent Pivotal Cloud Foundry release, two dot two. We talked Richard and I talked about it last episode or some other episode, but uh we'll we'll go over it uh closer. But before that, as always, a little bit of relevant infrastructure software news for those who are craving it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think I think we joined the uh, the consortium of fixing GPL v2 stuff. What, do you, you want to give us an overview of that, Richard?
2: Yeah, I mean, everyone should have uh, moved to the edge of their seat because this is about to get pretty exciting when we talk about open source licensing. So there is the general public license GPL. A lot of software goes under like Linux and others part of the challenge with V2 was that if you were non-compliant right? somebody said you were misusing it, then you could immediately sue that person, bury them under stuff. It wasn't great. It was a little bit combative. And so with V3, I believe there was this time of you had time to correct the license. And so this consortium said, you know, we're also going to go ahead and apply this to V2, even though we don't have to, because it's the right thing to do. So Pivotal Join and Red Hat led this up and Intel and Google and Microsoft, Cisco, a bunch of companies, uh, VMware as well jumped in and said, let's do the right thing around open source licensing and GPL. And so Pivotal was part of that. And anything that we either distribute that has GPL licensing or any of our own software that does, we're gonna make sure we play nice and and live to our core values.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think over the years, uh I used to, you know, I think I think to use an old phrase that's appropriate, I think I think I've I've forgotten more about open source licensing than uh than most people know about (laughs) Mickey Mouse or something. But man. That, that stuff is, uh, is complicated. So it's, it is always nice, you know, uh, just as a side note to sort of have a, a clarification about what, what all these things are. And mm-hmm. uh, I have also noticed over the years, there's been a, um, a consolidation of licensing that's out there, which, which is great. So, so then also, uh, you know, uh, you, I, I didn't uh, think to cover this here in this podcast, but you put in a link to the, the news of, uh, Broadcom buying CA, formerly known As computer associates. Now, Mm -hmm. I used to work at uh, BMC Software. And of course, when I was an analyst, I covered uh, what I would call IT management. So I don't know. Sure. I know CA. I'm not so Mm -hmm. familiar with uh, the chip companies like Broadcom, but it is a, uh, I think, I think the general reaction uh, was summed up by a tweet quoted by Kent Beck uh, that Stephen (laughs) O'Grady did, which was, which was wait, period, 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 WT question mark. Um, and, you know, I think it is, uh, there, there's been, there's been, uh, I forget where, um, maybe, I think it was 451, like Nancy Goring and a couple of other people uh, wrote this up, but they had a more, I'm trying not to say the word level-headed, but they had a more, let's let's do a deeper analysis of this that was pretty good. And I think, um, you know, for people who don't know, uh, CA, CIO I can only say computer associates. But uh, CA was one of the uh, what used to be called the Big Four uh, people in management. That being BMC, uh, IBM, Tivoli, uh, CA, and who's uh, hmm, the fourth one? I'm always forgetting. Anyhow, uh, someone else and um, HP was in there as well uh, with their their not Opsware. What do they call it? Ops Ops something. Uh, can you tell? I used to be an analyst who covered this stuff. Yeah, Anyhow, the deep expertise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, so they have they have they have uh, I think their revenue is maybe like uh forty sixty between like mainframe and and what mainframe people call distributed or what the rest of us call computers mm-hmm. uh, but they have a whole bunch of software that helps you do batch job management, monitoring log management, and they also have like uh of late some DevOps tool chains, which are kind of interesting. They actually have some good uh white papery stuff if you're interested in that from a couple of years ago, but yeah, it looks like Broadcom is looking to expand into the software world. Uh, you know, not that I might have firsthand experience with that kind of thing, but, uh, it is, it is, uh, it'll be fun to see what, what they do. And as people often remind you in this kind of coverage, the real sort of insider, uh, popcorn eating events are to see if they purchase anything else or acquire, I should say. Uh, and if you're really interested in more commentary, uh, we talked about this last week on my other podcast, software to find talk, uh, you know, and there's some links to that Nancy Goring piece and, uh, and other things as well. And I'll link to the mm-hmm. register in our show notes. Right. But did you, did, did this get your, your, uh, your blood going, uh, Richard and Jared? Were you, were you did you spend three hours reading about this?
2: <laughs> I think I just did the, uh, the Cocker Spaniel head tilt. Like that was about it. Like, oh, mm. that's, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny when you have kind of unconventional purchases, when Amazon does buy Whole Foods, you have some of these other ones you're like, oh, that that's kind of wacky and cool. I can see some synergy there. But sometimes when the old guards get together, it's just like, "Well, you're just kind of beating together these two old companies with a stick and, and assuming they're going to merge together." Well, I don't know. Maybe there's a benefit mm-hmm. of the doubt in there. There must be some good strategy to spend. What was it like 19 billion or something like that? There. Yeah, so, I, I think I, think yeah. I,
0: I, I still I, I read this multiple times and I still don't believe it. But I think it's the largest <sighs> software acquisition ever, uh, which wow. which uh, which must, must be true because people keep saying that. Uh, wow. Like Amazing. all things people say over and over and over again. But yeah, it, that is, uh, that is large. You know, speaking of, uh, I got my $10 of, of Amazon money by shopping mm. at Whole Foods yesterday and spending $10. So uh,
2: it's working. Things
0: are looking up this week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have, have, you, have y'all been in a Whole Foods recently? They are like, they are like prime-tastic in there. They just like, the prime is everywhere and they wear prime t-shirts. It really is, uh, they're sort of taking that over. Still the same good uh, food and everything they have. But man, they're really going to town on that.
2: Yeah, which probably touches uh, on well, that uh, next item you had. We'll skip over the next, next one just for a moment because that whole Walmart choosing Azure thing, I think is in reaction to your uh, your priming of, of Whole Foods, no?
0: Oh, of course it must be. That's, this is all very planned out as always. Of course. Uh, of the segues. But yeah, I, uh, I just read this this morning that uh, Walmart uh, chose, chose, choose uh, Microsoft Azure as their, uh, you know, I didn't read the wording closely, but as their cloud, public cloud partner. And uh, which uh, I guess makes sense if there, if, if you accept the premise that there are three major public cloud uh, vendors, at least for North American companies, mm-hmm. if not, uh, you know, the list gets a little longer if you go global. I should say U.S. companies. I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of the Canadians. Uh, but if you accept that, then basically if you're in retail, you have two choices between Microsoft and uh, Google, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they, they chose Azure. Now, what I thought was interesting uh, about this, I mean, as something to notice, is there was much emphasis placed on um, servicing what I would almost call internal-facing stuff, right? Now, it seemed to be in the service, and by, by that I mean... Um, consumer-facing stuff would be like if you go to walmart.com and all the stuff we as individuals would interact with to buy things, whereas internal things would be sort of like software that Walmart uses to run their own business. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, there was some commentary about being able to use Microsoft's machine learning and analytics stuff to get a better sense of whatever, (laughs) running their business better. And and no doubt also some other stuff like, you know, targeting and uh, stuff like that, which which I think is uh, now that I'm saying it is, is notable. Uh, it's a notable little thing in the sense that I think I think there's sort of like anecdotal agreement that Google's analytic stuff is awesome, and so uh, for some reason, not that it's not not uh, valid, but uh, Walmart was impressed with Azure stuff. So uh, that's great. They'll be they'll be doing more public cloud stuff, and I think. And then finally, one more thing: like um, it's really not that surprising too much anymore. But I think. I think maybe the next big round of uh, tipping pointy kind of stuff around public cloud is, is exactly the sort of using it for your internal operations. Uh, and I think hearing more and more of those stories will be a uh, fun ongoing and educational about like the, uh, the blurring if not sort of like melting of public versus uh, private cloud usage.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's obviously some commentary that Walmart's been a pretty public open stack user. And does that mean that's waning? And, I think, as always, this reflects that you know beat the multi-cloud drum, I guess. But you know, you you do make does make sense to use really innovative machine learning in the public cloud, and maybe doing some some data analytics there, or edge processing, or fun stuff like that. That does not negate what is probably a decade or two migration, even if you started today to stop using private infrastructure for a company of that size. So this oh, feels yeah. more like a diversification story than some sort of migration story. I think it's just. They're being smart, and they're also choosing a cloud provider that probably competes with them less often than the other ones will.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess that's another artfully planned segue. There's a there's a piece over in built to adapt that that, <laughs> uh, that that was just published today uh, that that I was uh, mostly writing, and uh, it's all about like selecting which type of cloud. And 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 as as with uh, the brevity given to it, it doesn't. Uh, it sort of like leaves you slightly more confused than uh, knowing exactly what to do but it uh it, it, go, it goes over like my my usual kind of survey of what analysts are saying and also uh what what organizations out there are doing and how they're sorting through uh, cloud choices and i think i think uh you know tragically i'm not sure that uh, at, at least at least this part of it is a pivotal uh, customer but you know i was linking to one of my favorite stories recently how uh, how chick-fil-a is actually running like tiny, relatively tiny, tiny Kubernetes instances in store to, uh, I don't know, make sure the waffle fries are cooked crispy. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about all the different Chick fil A locations and how they have a, um, what would you call that? Like we used to call that a federated cloud. I don't know, but, but the, how they have sort of like this, this clustery kind of, um, it's, it's sort of like a private community cloud to be silly about it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's a model for what you would expect to see in a lot of, uh, whether it's retail stores or organizations that have tons of physical locations where they want one, one sort of multi-cloud functional way of managing all of their IT uh, in a fun way. So I don't think that talk's been posted yet, but it'll be fun to go see that. And you know, I went to a Chipotle recently for the first time mm-hmm. in a long time. And uh, my nephew works there, so I got the inside track on the whole sauce situation. I don't know if you all have been to a Chick Fil A recently, but they have—they're crazy with sauces. Lots of sauces. His recommendation was the uh, the Szechuan one, which uh, nice. or whatever the
2: version they have there. Which was yeah, they're uh, yeah. I've been to their headquarters a couple times, and their cafeterias like you just walk in and grab Chick Fil A sandwiches. Which, gosh, that would be dangerous. So it's uh, it's awesome, but but terrifying. But yeah, that's a uh, that's sort of. Uh, distributed, edge cloud, federated cloud, whatever you call it, assuming they're connected to each other and all that sort of thing is neat. And again, it's just these different paradigms. It's not replacing all the stuff you did before. It replaces some things, of course, but I don't know. I, I think these are cool diversification stories, not sort of, hey, this thing just ate this other thing and now everyone's doing the new thing. I, I don't think that's what the reality yeah. is. It's, it's
0: the it's the classic thing you learn in, uh, or the reoccurring pattern that you learn in, uh, I don't know, Computer coverage is that like nothing necessarily dies. It just gets added to, which (laughs) is like, uh, one of my favorite IBM sayings is you never get a new job. You just just add to your existing job, uh, which is very similar to how technology uh, works there. there So then also uh, related to that, there, I was, uh, I think I failed to mention this last time, but there's a new uh, Cloud Foundry Foundation survey out and I'll put, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, there's a good, um, uh, roundup, uh, of, uh, of not only what's in the TFF survey, but in a couple other ones that kind of, it's, uh, you know, I always enjoy the, uh, synthesizing a bunch of different little things together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it has a good, good overview of what's in the TFF, uh, survey and other ones. And, and I, and I think, uh, and I, I think we've definitely uh, seen this evolving over recent, maybe the year or so is there's a lot more discussion about, uh, cost savings in addition to, what would you call it revenue growth or, or, you know, the, the sort of like optimization that uh, shift shifting over to a PaaS and infrastructure uh, platform stuff like this can be, but it's a good overview of what's in that survey. And maybe we'll come back to talking about it more when I've actually sat down and read it in detail and, and taken notes
2: yeah that no, was a good report kurt does uh Kurt does good work, so definitely worth a read and of course, I think he puts a little you know hey, be careful these are vendor sponsored surveys who knows if it's going to give you always the clean take, but there's some trends it's showing you some of those things so definitely definitely worth reading and then you know as we kept talking about multi cloud and these other things, it's been interesting to see Google add a new Los Angeles data center even to the cost question, they added some pretty cool forecasting tooling so that when you do migrate your stuff, you can actually figure out what you're spending based on credits and consumption and and things like that. So Google Cloud's doing some cool stuff. Next week is their big show. I'll be there. A bunch of pivots will be there. There should be some fun things going on. And uh, because we love all the clouds, Microsoft just awarded us their uh, consumption partner of the year again for the second straight time, meaning the sort of partner that drove the most consumption on Azure, which is pretty neat. So yeah world's multi cloud multi abstraction it seems to either this is just confirmation bias or this stuff is real. It's not just showing up in our news feeds
0: mm as we're fond of saying this this cloud thing might be a thing
1: it might, it, be. It might be
0: do you, do, you, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we uh we stop saying cloud or what is the opposite of cloud is i mean i feel like I feel like cloud will be what we'll say instead of like servers or or interest or data center will just we kind of already do that already i think.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, we we often say like run it on. I, I think I just saw some new stuff Jared was writing, and it's still about hey, run this thing on any cloud, and by that we mean public or private infrastructure. It's just a cloud, and that seems like that'll be the the way we refer to it. Yeah,
0: which which would be kind of funny for the the etymology of the world word because if I remember originally, like if you go back and read uh, you know your networking books, uh, there's always there's always this cloud in the diagrams, which is which is to say. We're not going to talk about this part. <laughs> and, and then, and then nowadays, if that's sort of like people's assets, they probably know exactly what's in their cloud. So right. it becomes a uh, delightfully, a delightfully ironic uh, description. Well, uh, and then finally, before we get to, uh, oh, I forgot to put that in. Before we get to, uh, uh, talking about PCS 2.2, uh, I, I think I, I just finished publishing, uh, three little excerpts from, uh, I don't know. This sounds pompous, but the third edition of my cloud native journey book. Um, and uh, I, I had one on compliance that I was writing up and uh, on what the, um, I don't know what the team formation looks like or product teams that, that work on the actual software. And then today, uh, Jared helped me out a little bit with this one. I, I posted one on uh, metrics. Hmm. Uh, and the third one, the third one, we'll see what happens. Because the thing as I if, if you pay close attention to all of my little snarky comments is, Uh, the thing about metrics is you, if you ask people to tell you about metrics, they will refuse to answer you. But I think what happens is if that you actually say, here's what I think metrics are, then they tell you a whole bunch of stuff. It's One of those (laughs) things where like, no one can really like tell you the content that you need until you take the position. And then it sort of just like extracts out all of this knowledge they had in their head, like some sort of Athena of metrics popping out of their head. So hopefully people can help me out with that section because it's the, uh, most mysterious uh so far but i'll put links to those in there or if you just go to my like medium profile that's where i posted them so uh so on that note i think and and the reason i asked jared to help out with the metrics thing is because his uh his mega blog post of pivotal cloud foundry 2.2 begins with uh with metrics which i think i think i think that's that's a good starting point for us is like, what are, what are the, uh, you start off with something that's been banging around a little bit. You start off with the five S's model of, uh, of, of keeping track of, I guess, how you're, you're doing your digital transformation or improving your software or whatever. And uh, Jared, what are these five S's?
1: It's really about these business outcomes that we like to jabber on about you know, at, at Pivotal with our customers nobody gets up in the morning and says, wow, I wish I had me a container today, or I wish I had me a container orchestrator or or VM or a cloud today. They've got some kind of business problem that, you know, needs to be solved and they usually want to rub some technology on it to, you know, improve the, the, the issues that they're having. And I think that this, this five S's is just a really snazzy conversational way to talk about these things that kind of take this idea of, of metrics and, you know, level them up to the executive, you know, boardroom kind of level away from kind of these feeds and speeds kind of numbers, and into this area of outcomes that you know, can really make a difference for these companies that are trying to you know, software better. So we talk about you know speed, you know, how quickly can you you know, release things? Um, are you able to re- rev your software you know quickly to to keep up with you know the ever changing demands of these you know finicky customers? Uh, also this, you know, this idea of stability, you've got to have your systems online and, and up and running. Um, and it's really important to have them up and running during these crazy busy business events that you have going on during the year, whether it's, you know, Black Friday or Cyber Monday or the launch of a new product when your business systems are just getting taxed with all these new customers that are, you know, signing up for your services. That's when you need your IT and software to perform the most. And kind of the flip side of that would be scalability, being able to handle the elastic workloads that that come and go during you know busy times and on nights and weekends when things are are at a lull. You want to try and you know, be smart about your resources and your spending there. And then uh, security, you know, we know that executives will get hauled in front of Congress if their patching practices aren't uh, up to up to snuff. So security is a a big thing. That's a, that's another S. And then probably the the final of the five S's is, is this uh, idea of savings. Where you know uh, CIOs are being asked to do to do more and being asked to do more with less money. So, are you able to you know right size your IT investments? Or are you able to retire those enterprise licensing products that you know, don't quite fit the way that you're developing software these days and go to more of a utility consumption style uh, way of of uh, consuming your IT IT services? So, those are those five S's, and I think it uh, really kind of cuts right through a lot of the you know, murkiness when it comes to all these, you know, IT it products out there.
2: When you hear that, that was a good summary, Jared. I mean, I know we've tried to move away from, I don't know, not, not even us, but not talking much as much about vanity metrics. And, and Cotafer, I guess you too, are there metrics that you hear that you might go, that's really cool? And then when you stop and think for a second, you're like, I don't know if that told me anything. And I know for me, I've started to get less impressed with even the sort of like how many deployments we do a month, only because... I mean, what's a deployment? I I could have, you know, changed the name of a variable or, you know, I could have made something smaller. I could have updated the database. So that number alone is interesting. Or even the Spring Boot downloads, we don't talk about as much now because that's cool. But what is that showing usage? Is that showing momentum as much as how many projects created at start.spring.io? That seems like a legit number. I'm starting a new project. That's not just a download in a CI pipeline. So are there numbers? I guess I'm, I'm flipping the interview around. I mean, Cote or... Jared, that you've kind of gotten more lukewarm on over time, that you feel like might just be a vanity metric.
0: Well, I, I agree. I mean, the framing I would use is like because uh, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Is I, I think I don't know what the time period is, so I'm just going to throw something out. But I think I think there's a, a, a subset of metrics that are important for the first year, let's say, to yeah. sort of like track your improvement. And 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 like you're saying early on, like tracking the number of deploys you do during a period. I mean. I don't know. I always use a week as, as like the period of releasing, and I think I think it's important to like track. I guess you would have one release per week, but tracking the the, the rate or velocity—not to get all wrapped up in Scrum velocity terms—but tracking the velocity of your releases is important just to like see if you're improving. Just like you know, when I'm constantly trying to live longer by losing weight, I have to uh, depress myself early in the morning each day. Uh, so it's important to track that metric uh and and i think i think it's good to say it, to uh him to that and similarly like download stuff are good for that right? like once you uh once you reach ubiquity you only really want to monitor if it goes down mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak um, Oh, no, that's but,
2: a that's a great point i mean i think there's probably different yeah, metrics yeah. in year 1 than years you know 2 through 7 or something like that
0: yeah and and i think i mean to answer your question slightly differently i think one that like um that maybe is to use the Tyler Cohen way of thinking about it, or Cowan uh, like underrated is is tracking stuff you've learned, which mm. is really difficult to figure out, but the whole point, not the whole point, one of the main points of improving the way that you do your software is that you should experiment and try things out and and as as uh, as people will say, fail a lot and i think I think realizing that with software learning something, which is to say failing, and then eventually succeeding is incredibly valuable. Uh, Like, it it would be helpful, I think, to start tracking, like, we finally got this right. (laughs) And it took this amount of learning to figure it out. Because I think in my experience, like, I don't think this is just IT organizations, but I think every single human endeavor, especially in business, like, is really bad at calibrating on how much effort Goes into doing something, especially when it comes to how much learning uh, is required. So that would be a nice metric that I don't think people track very much to sort of re- get in people's space uh, mm-hmm. a lot more to kind of like, um, what's the word, acculturate or to get people used to this idea that like uh, we're failing. And just, I guess, one more thing and then I'll stop talking. Apparently, I had a lot of coffee today. Uh, but uh, I think I think you hear a lot about like in the DevOps, the SRE world about like celebrating failure and having blameless postmortems and things like that, and I and I think what I'm suggesting is another version of this. Like, it's not really like a blameless postmortem. It's sort of like a, a realistic, you know, how we failed the success <laughs> sort of <laughs> sort of report that would be nice for uh, people to collect on. So hopefully, I bought
1: Jared enough time to think of an answer. <laughs> I I for me I think the the context is what's really important you know as you said Richard the vanity metrics about number of deployments you know per day can be kind of misleading what I think is really compelling is when organizations are really honest with themselves and take a look at their broader portfolio of applications you know these organizations are dealing with you know hundreds thousands of applications have they done sort of the hard work to do an audit for what their most important say 30 or 50 applications are and do they have this you know, sort of five 5S scoreboard for each of those 30 applications? It's, it's one thing to have some kind of your billing service update or some kind of activation service update. That's all that's all well and good, but how are you going about this, you know, massive modernization effort across all of your applications? To me, I think that, that your portfolio and this idea of taking these very powerful but sometimes difficult to implement ideas and doing the hard work to bring those to more places is what's really impressive. So I like that more holistic view rather than sort of your numbers that can be eye popping, but you're not really quite sure what they mean.
0: So so then uh, getting back. To uh, uh, the 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 Pivotal Cloud Foundry two two release, tell us you know tell us what I'm sure everyone is interested in. What what are the what are the PKS updates? What, what can people look forward to there?
1: Yeah, I think with uh, with PKS uh, we've done a lot of uh, talking to customers about all this Kubernetes business, and it turns out the the killer feature, the thing that people really want, is that they want Kubernetes to work. And it turns out that that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's a lot more difficult than it sounds. So, you know, we've really put a focus on this, you know, operability of, of Kubernetes and we have this, you know, distributed tool chain called Bosch that, you know, works really well for, you know, distributed systems like Kubernetes. And so this is really, you know, taking the, the magic of, of Bosch and continuing to, uh, you know, let, let Kubernetes, you know, kind of take advantage of these different capabilities. So if you think back to these S's, you know, being able to have, um, you know some some multi-master kind of you know, capabilities, some multi AZ kind of deployments. You know keeping your Kubernetes clusters online and available is is really key. So there's now a, a fourth layer of high availability that's in your know, PKS, and that's something that users of our app platform have come to know and love over the last you know several years. Um, so I think that's probably uh, the the main thing. And then there's also the, the notion of you know, keeping up with what the Kubernetes project is, is doing, and you know they release every quarter. and so PKS 1.1 rather includes Kubernetes 1.10, which is the you know, latest you know, stable version of that project that's running on the, the Google. Uh, kubernetes service gke so uh, we want to give customers that vanilla kubernetes experience using the the latest stable version and we want it to uh be up and running for for customers so those are probably the the two big highlights i'd uh, i'd flog there.
0: Mm. Mm. No, that makes sense I, I i like your take on the uh the the highest priority story for uh, for kubernetes of. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, well, then, then, another one. I mean, one of the primary S's. What are what are the highlights you would have about uh, the security uh, features that are in this release?
1: Security, yeah. There's always a, a lot of stuff that we're that we're doing with security, and what I've noticed is uh, as you you kind of go through these these releases, is that there's you know two really important security features that seem to take on more and more responsibilities in the platform over time, and uh, you all have talked about this idea of Credhub, this secure way to manage secrets in Cloud Foundry, um, how to you know, manage them and keep them out of you know, clear text and configuration files and, and manifest and so on. And so you know, Credhub you know, has started to do a, a whole lot uh, in Cloud Foundry over the last year or so. And each successive release, it just takes on that much more uh, credential management your responsibilities. So there's uh, more Credhub goodness in, in 2.2. There's even a, Credhub service broker, so you can use Credhub with your so-called off-platform services. So if you want your ERP or some other system to work with uh, your application platform, you can now have Credhub in the mix of how credentials are managed uh, and all of that stuff. Uh, and then the other really important security feature that continues to be additive with each release is is TLS. So being able to have your know, data encrypted uh, in transit between more and more components. And you know, Cloud, Cloud Foundry is a pretty complicated entity, and so there's you know dozens or hundreds of different communications pathways throughout all the different uh, uh, services that run inside the guts of the platform. And may, being able to have TLS on those uh, uh, bet- on those routes is really important to give customers just that much more security that the that the client and and server in each of those you know, transactions is who they say they are and that uh, you're going to have uh, a lot less risk of a, of a breach or sort of a, a bad actor getting in between those pathways that can siphon off your, your data. So CredHub and TLS uh, kind of continue to be really interesting themes that we roll out you know, more and more of over time.
2: Hmm. You know, a couple other things that jumped out to me, Jared, were you know, we just started talking the whole podcast about infrastructure and public cloud, private cloud. And I don't know, at some point if you do automation right, the private, at least from the outside looking in, isn't dramatically different than the public. And there were at least three things that stood out to me. There was the multi data center on vSphere and multi-site deployment. There's the pivotal ready architecture kind of drop all this thing in there and the Azure stack support Mind kind of digging into those three real quick and and what you see the implications are.
1: Yeah, I think with uh, with what you're, what you're seeing is that there's a lot of customers that are seeing the benefits of these, you know, five Vests on top of an app platform. And so when they have that success, they want to try and, Deploy this in in more ways in more places, and so the the vSphere thing is really a, a neat way to expand capacity when you've got you know, maybe some some data sovereignty requirements to try and contend with, where it's easier to you know make things uh, make things work in in more uh, on-premises you know sites. So you've got a single instance of the application platform running in, into vSphere locations. So it's a, a nice easy way to to scale that out without adding operational complexity. And then on the the Azure Stack stuff, I think uh that opens up a whole new kind of you know, series of use cases where you know, Azure Stack, it looks just like uh public cloud, you know, Azure with a few configuration differences. So now you can get you know Azure Stack you know on a on a cruise ship or a Chick-fil-A or any other kind of location um, that doesn't quite make sense for a whole enterprise data center or it doesn't make sense for a public cloud. So if you've got this nice you know tweener place you can run your Run your compute and run your applications, and then I think the the last one you mentioned is Pivotal Ready architecture, which uh, uses hyperconverged infrastructure from from Dell. And so, if you really want to get PCF up and going, you know, quickly, uh, you certainly can do that with with vSphere and, and your private cloud. You've got to go through the usual infrastructure mechanics there to add capacity to your private cloud, but with uh, PRA you just drop in an appliance, you know, plug it in and you're, and you're good to go. So it's a, a really uh, no must, no fuss kind of way to get PCF up and going, you know, very quickly and have it be tested and validated by uh, our friends at, at Dell EMC. Yeah,
2: that's cool. I know uh, for a lot of people, if they want to play with some of these pivotal web services is a great place to try out, you know, the new auto scaling stuff and some of those non-opsy features, since you don't have access to an ops manager, but all the dev features are there. People should try out. I wanted to, Switch gears with you real quick, and you know one thing now that pks is is hitting this kind of regular rhythm and, and what you're doing with pas and I, I guess I wanted to peek behind the curtain just a little bit and maybe you could quick explain how in the world are you wrangling dozens of teams at this point to help message or release you know I think maybe a, for teams that are starting to grow or even within enterprise, this idea of actually having marketing and engineering I don't know actually like each other and work well together might be weird. you and I have some experience there so what, what's kind of worked here for teams that are maybe thinking about how do you do more agile marketing on top of a very distributed set of engineering
1: teams? That's an interesting question. And I think that it, there's really a lot that, you know, agile development and software has a lot to teach a number of you know, different you know, disciplines. I think I heard some folks on Twitter saying they wish they could use, you know, GitHub for their you know, presentation, your know, source control, so all of these really uh useful development tools are having b- broad applicability in just how you you know manage information how you manage your content and so if you think about what makes for a high velocity you know engineering or development team those are things that also make for you know high velocity you know content teams or or high velocity you know content marketing teams and so i think that um you know certainly uh the, the good tools is is really important so there's kind of the usual ways that you can you know collaborate with uh You GitHub and and things along those lines. Um, What's also really important is giving people a frictionless way to see their content. You get out there into the into the wild. Um, So making it as easy as possible for you know product owners, product managers to see the the fruits of their labor. So for a lot of us on the on the product side, that means a lot of editorial work to spruce up the content and, and get it out there so that the the product folks really see the impact that their content has. Um, that's probably one thing. And then, uh, you're getting out in front of each of the, each of the releases that you're, that you're doing. We do releases every quarter here. Um, so being able to you know, probably do a lot of the the heavy lifting and do a lot of the work on the, on the product side before you go to product owners, um, is really important. So you're educating, you're involved with, with documentation, you're on the, the stand ups, you have a really good sense of what's happening in the product so that when you go to product owners, there's a. More, uh, I guess, multiple piece of clay for them to work with, uh, if you will, as far as the the text and content that they have to work with.
2: Yeah, I think I've noticed that a lot with what you've done. I mean, it's about showing up in a lot of cases, building some trust. You're not just airlifting the week before release when everyone's packed, going, "Hey, what did you ship?" And then, of course, the trust isn't there. So it seems like actually being there throughout all the time, and the team knows to go to our team and talk to them. I don't know. I guess that's the piece of advice I would share from a lot of the stuff I watch you do is is be in the conversations and then it isn't this one massive lift at the end. It's really just kind of an incremental delivery. I don't know, maybe just like software.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's really the the thing. There's a repeatable cadence. And uh, I think the first release I did was PCF 1.8 and that was a little rough and it's gotten a little bit better, you know, with each successive time and you know, still lots more to do, but you learn a little bit more about, you know, each, uh, each thing as it, as it comes up and you just, you know, refine and iterate and get better. Um, you got to think about the metrics that you want to have to try and you know manage that whole process so you can you know, improve things over time.
0: Well, speaking of uh, generating lots of content and uh, do, doing that, I always think of it as like internal journalism that you have to do to just, you have, you have a beat of covering the, uh, the release, So you have to just track it and eventually you'll publish something uh do some reporting and, and analysis as it were. But yeah, I mean I think it's evident in the, the series of, of uh of, of release note posts you've done and other people that uh uh they get longer in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> so so y'all are y'all are able to collect more details, right? Which is as I think I was saying when we talked about this briefly last time, right? Like that's what I want from release notes. Uh I wanna know like all the stuff. And uh and then and then in a blog post of it it's good to to summarize the things that are important instead of just having like every single uh, stuff that 's changed uh, essentially, but in addition to that like uh, you know since since you work on the stuff, are there any any white papers we have out that that you would highlight or point people towards
1: yeah, I think there's one that's been that 's been uh, uh, pretty pretty interesting to see the the reception to uh, one of the big things that we 've you know, talked about is you know cloud foundry as the as the standard for your app platform and Kubernetes is the standard for your you know, how you want to run containers, and then there's a third standard that folks should really be taking a look at uh, for how you attach backing services to Cloud Foundry and Kubernetes, and that's the Open Service Broker API, and it's gotten a little bit of you know attention on on Twitter you know recently, um, but it's a really slick piece of tech that's been around for a few years. And as people are realizing that they're going to have an app platform, they're going to have containers, and there's going to be some serverless and, and function stuff in there, um, they want to figure out ways they can you know add services to all those different things, whether it's an API gateway or messaging queues or, or databases or, or data stores or what have you and this open service broker has been you know, picked up by a lot of the uh, communities out there and it's been a, a really a, a godsend i think for a lot of you know, developers and operators that they uh, have one one mechanism one set of apis to to know about services so if you want to attach anything to cloud foundry or kubernetes The open service broker API is a a great way to do that. So uh, Matt McNini, Pivotal Product Manager and uh, co-chair of the open service broker API project. uh, And I sat down and and cranked out a paper that goes through, I think, a lot of the uh, anatomy of a service broker, uh, what it is, how you should use it, best practices, use cases, and so on. Uh, and really explores you know, why it's become this de facto pattern. So as we take a look at this you know, sea of things that are happening in distributed systems, it's, it's changing constantly. But Cloud Foundry, Kubernetes, and the open service broker are three really bedrock abstractions that you know, enterprises should you know, spend some time getting to know to help them you know, navigate this uh, world of digital business.
0: Well, before we uh, wrap up, so first of all, thanks for being on to uh, go over that with us. I'll, I'll put a link to the uh, to the uh, the thrilling blog post that we've been talking about, <laughs> and uh, it's definitely worth a read. And and also, you know, one other thing that I think is nice about it is that it, it collects together like uh, videos and and other resources to uh, dig further into it, uh, which is good. But just as a little bit of follow up, so last week, Richard, you were in town here in Austin and i got to uh i think i missed the first uh 8 to 10 minutes cuz apparently i have a always late syndrome so sorry about that i'm sure there was a great introduction to yourself and and other things but i saw your uh i don't know it's uh, it's basically like the uh the dot net version of josh long's talk where you're sort of like here's 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 how you can do dot net stuff and run it on uh, pivotal cloud foundry and get all the benefits that you would expect from uh, a microservices framework and uh, it was it was a good talk. People seem to be uh, paying attention, which is the criteria that I use often. And uh, and then also there were several questions afterwards, which was nice to see. But in case anyone's listening, you should definitely ask Richard to come tell you about uh, doing that modern .net development in, the, in a cloud native way. Because there's actually, I think, I think maybe there was three demos, which is pretty impressive for a marketing guy. So good good job on that.
2: Yeah. So you've you've giving me the nicest compliment you've ever given me a backhanded compliment, which was also good. So thank you. I was, uh, I was, I was touched that you showed up. That meant a lot to me.
0: That's right. And, and you, you also recommended, uh, hopefully this is not another inadvertent backhanded compliment. I I might have just only one. (laughs) I think I only have one side to my hand. Unfortunately I was born with that defect. Uh, But also, I think you've had one of the best, uh, little jokes possible, uh, that I've heard recently, which was, uh, there's a bunch of pickles out there. So maybe you can stuff those in your pocket and take them home. And I was actually kind of, uh, I was, I was miffed because we, the catering had been from Schlotsky's, which is actually an Austin based company that I think is owned by a private equity firm and combined with Cinnabon now. So it has mm. more of a national presence. But their pickles are delicious. They're like those classic crispy dill pickles that are really hard to find and i i would have totally swiped a bowl of those pickles but someone was faster than me so
2: uh uh, i'm
0: gonna be fast
2: yeah those pickles are my jam they're good stuff i I was really hoping someone would take a thing of pickles while i was talking and just plow through a like a plate of them that would have really distracted me for two hours that would have been good Mm,
0: well next time i'm at one of your talks i know what i'm gonna do that (laughs) that'll be that'll be great lock it in well this will We'll, we'll, uh, we'll pass the pickles around like a reverse collection plate and, uh, people, people can crunch through it. Well, uh, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. Uh, before, uh, and then the other thing before we wrap up is to remind you, uh, that we have Spring One platform coming up soon. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be leaving for Amsterdam and then coming back, uh, to Maryland on, uh, September 24th to 27th. Uh, and it's going to be a great conference if, if uh, you know, there's lots of sort of summaries and, and uh, of last year, lots of great videos you can look at, but I'm sure there'll be lots of conversation about uh, Pivotal uh, Container Services, PKS, using Kubernetes in production and then also using the Pivotal Application Service in production and Spring Boot. There might even be some .NET talks if we've done our job correctly. But also what I find interesting is there'll be lots of talks about uh, how organizations are improving the way that they're doing software. Lessons learned all the way from making build pipelines, to setting up sort of management level metrics and pair programming, testing and everything in between. So you got your, uh, you got your software, your tools and your technologies and, and your meatware, your sort of management and process and methodology. So if you're really interested in that, which you should be, you can go to the show notes at pivotal.io slash podcast. And there's a little $200 off discount code uh, that uh, that you can use that has my name in it, but you should definitely uh, check that out. And as always, this has been Pivotal Conversation. If you want to get the back episodes or this current one, you can go to SoundCloud.com slash Pivotal Conversation. And more or less every uh, Thursday, the show notes I keep mentioning, we post them at Pivotal.io slash podcast, so you can click around at all the exciting uh, news items that we mentioned. And uh, check out some other relevant things, including more information about Spring One Platform and uh, all that stuff. So we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.